Well, with that, let's go ahead and turn to the Word of, of God uh, so we can begin our meditation. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians today, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Now, last week, uh, Pastor John kind of kicked us off with our, our month of, of prayer, fasting, and vision. Uh, and he began uh, uh, this series uh, that's going to occur all through this month. Uh, he began with Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, we saw that uh, God saved us to be committed members of the body of Christ. And in fact, uh, every single one of us as saved sinners who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, every single one of us has a vital role to play within this body of Christ, within the local body of Christ, within Warrenton Bible Fellowship. And so this month we're spending in prayer and fasting in the hope that God will, will uh, help us to understand his vision for us, and namely, uh, to answer a very important question for us. We know that we are already one in Christ. Uh, that is, uh, Christ, uh, because of the blood that he shed for us and through our faith in him, we are members of the household of God. We are members of the family of God, and that makes us one. Uh, so uh, we don't have to figure out how to be in unity. What we need to figure out is how we fit together on a practical level, on a day-to-day -day level. How does all of this work? And so uh, this is the question that we're, we're asking God to answer for us this month, uh, this question of how do we fit together. And so today, uh, we're going to see, among other things, how prayer is one of the answers to that question. Prayer is one of the answers to that question of how we fit together as the body of Christ. Now, I think we've all had an experience uh, similar uh, to mine. Uh, I was in middle school one day. I was taking a quiz, and I realized I was beginning to feel ill. And so uh, the teacher let me go to the, to the clinic, and the nurse confirmed that, yes, indeed, I felt bad, which I was trying to tell her all along anyway. And uh, so, then, uh, so then she picks up the phone to call my mom. Now, this is the 1970s. There's no such thing as a cell phone. And I knew that my mom was going to be out doing errands. And that spelled doom for me because my mom's errands lasted centuries. I'm not kidding. And I knew that because I'd been on errands with her. And they went on for hours and hours and hours, and my whole body ached by the time I got home. But she was off by herself, which meant she might stay even longer. And so I was a Christian then, a very young believer, very immature in my faith, but I knew enough to pray. I knew that God answered prayers. And so I began to pray like crazy, let me tell you. I'm like, Lord, please let mom come home, please, so that she can, because the nurse was going to keep, keep trying to call her. Please let her come home so my mom can come and get me and I can go home and be in my own bed and get some of my mom's TLC. That's what I really needed. I didn't want to spend four or five or six hours in the school clinic. And so I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And after about a half an hour, all of a sudden the nurse says, I got a hold of your mom. She came home. And so my mom came and got me, and on the way home, I told my mom, you know what, 
I, I prayed that you would come home. And she said, well, that's interesting. Because I wasn't planning to come home at all. I was going to stay out for hours because I wanted to get these errands done. But something just told me to go home. And isn't that awesome? Don't we love to hear that kind of thing? Because God does answer our prayers. He hears us. And so God heard my prayer. He heard my plea and rescued me from the school clinic. And I love that. But here's the problem. From middle school all the way, at least until college, my prayer life didn't grow. And what I mean by that is my prayers became a to-do list for God. Hey, God, uh, I've, I've got this issue over here. Would you fix that for me, please? Uh, God, I'm sick. Make me well. God, uh, there's this going on. I need you to do this. So as long as I felt like that God was checking off his to-do list that I'd sent him, uh, then I was pretty happy with him. And isn't this kind of the pattern that we can all get into? This is the way that we can think about prayer. Is that, is that God is there uh, with his clipboard in hand, ready to write down some new to-dos uh, that we tell him to do, and then he's going to do them for us. That's kind of the, what we end up expecting of God. That's kind of what we end up thinking that prayer is. Well, today, uh, we're going to see that, that God and Paul see prayer very differently from a to-do list for God. And we're going to see that prayer actually has a lot to do with how we fit together as the body of Christ. And so we're going to take a look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians. This is a, one of two letters that Paul wrote to new believers in Thessalonica. This is a large city in Macedonia and in what is today Greece. Uh, this, is, this letter is one of the first that Paul wrote, or at least one of the first that we know of. Uh, he wrote this in about uh, 50 or 51 AD. Uh, this is about 16 years into the ministry of Paul. And so among other things, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians uh, to encourage new believers to live godly lives. And the godly life for Paul always was lived in the context of the body of Christ. A godly life is never meant to be lived as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, as a matter of fact. And so God always calls us to be in relationship with other believers. And so Paul is envisioning here the local body of Christ as one that is engaged with each other. The people within the body know each other and they're engaged with each other. Now, as we go through this passage, there's a whole lot of, of, uh, of uh, areas that, that we, can, we can go down, a lot of paths we can go down. Uh, there's a whole lot that can be said about this passage today on a variety of, of subjects. But as we think about these things today, we're thinking of the fact that we're better together. And we're striving to answer the question, how do we fit together on a practical level? How does this work? How do we fit together as the body of Christ? And so our goal today, given that today we're considering prayer, is to walk away with a better understanding not only of prayer, but also how prayer is essential to our fitting together. And so let me give you the outline of, of the passage here. 
Paul is, is kind of writing his last instructions before he closes the letter. He's writing these instructions to the church. And he's showing them what the characteristics, the basic characteristics of a godly church is. And so, uh, so what Paul is saying is that, is that we fit together uh, in four different ways. We fit together when we respect and esteem our leadership in verses 12 and 13. And then, uh, number two, we fit together when we are engaged in real relationships with each other. And so, Kurt, here's my little pun. Do you get it? Uh, all of these begin with R. You understand? I crack myself up. So we respect and esteem our leadership. We're engaged in real relationships with each other in verses 14 and 15. And then uh, thirdly, in verses 16 through 18, we fit together when we, when we rejoice and pray and give thanks. And really, this is an act of worshiping together, worshiping God together. And then finally, number four, we fit together when we resist evil and receive what is good in verses 19 through 22. And so uh, allow me to read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 22 for us. We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, and see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and dig in. Let's look at this, this first characteristic of a godly church. We, we, the way that we fit together when we respect and esteem our leadership in verses 12 and 13. Isn't it true that as you read Paul's letters, he's constantly reminding us, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in subtle ways, how there's structure in the kingdom of God. Christ is the head of the church. We read that in Colossians chapter 1. And, and uh, under Christ are the church leaders. We are subject to Christ as all of us are. But leaders are held accountable in a different way from someone who is not. A pastor, an elder, is held to a different kind of accountability. We who lead are judged according to how we lead. And so in Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so... Uh, in other words, God expects us as pastors and elders to feed the sheep the good food of the gospel, both in word and deed. We don't just stand up here and preach, but not practice what we preach. We need to be good examples of the gospel ourselves. And so we are held accountable for that. God holds us accountable not only for what we teach and preach, but also for what we do. And so... Therefore, we serve you on behalf of Christ, and someday we're going to have to give an account to God 
for the kind of job that we've done. And so here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is exhorting us uh, as a congregation to respect and highly esteem the leaders of the church. And this can include the elders and the pastors, but also the deacons and the ministry heads and so on. And so the reason for your respect for your leaders is in the fact that we labor for you, that we labor diligently for you and strive to labor for you in a way that sets an example for you of how to live a godly life. And the reason that you should hold us in esteem is not because of our charming personalities or our good looks, but instead, you're to hold us in esteem because we are servants of Christ who are working for him who are working for him for your good, for your blessing. That's why we're here. And I think Paul says it best at the beginning, near the beginning of, of 1 Thessalonians, when he, when he lays out his own heart, his, his, his own pastor's heart toward this congregation. And I know that, that, uh, that this speaks for me, and I know it speaks for Pastor John and the elders. And this is what Paul says in 1 uh, Thessalonians 2, verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And that's the truth, brothers and sisters. You are dear to me. I hope that's obvious. But let me just say it out loud. You are dear to me. I love each of you in the Lord. And I know Pastor John does too. I know that Leslie does and Kelly does. I know that our elders do. This is our heart for you. We want dearly for you not only to know the gospel, but we want to see you live the gospel. We want to see the gospel spring forth from you. And so we're willing uh, to, uh, to lay down our own selves, to share with you our own selves, to pour ourselves out because of our love for you. And so Paul says to respect and esteem your leaders for the work that we do. And sometimes that work even includes admonishing you. That means to firmly reprimand you. There's no way around it in the Greek. That's in verse 12. But I hope you understand that when we do, and some of you have experienced this over a cup of coffee at Panera or in our office or, or uh, just in passing at some point, I hope you understand that when we do admonish you, it's never to tear you down or to tear you to pieces. It's to draw you closer to Christ. It's to encourage you to, to reflect Christ in how you live and in your attitudes and in your desires. We want you to live the gospel. We want you to know Christ in a more intimate and deep way. And so because of this admonishing, uh, this is probably one of the reasons why Paul says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. You see, since part of our job as leaders is to sometimes say hard things to you, and since sometimes we get those hard things wrong, uh, that can breed uh, some, some hard feelings. And so it's important for us to, to do our best to resolve our differences. 
And see, something beautiful happens when we strive for a godly kind of peace, when we strive uh, for understanding, when we give each other the benefit of the doubt, when we trust each other, even when we don't understand each other. This beautiful thing that happens is a godly peace, is a harmony between us. And what that means then is that we're pulling in the same direction for the glory of God. We're no longer at odds with each other, but we're depending on God's grace and power to reconcile us one to another and to him. But how do we achieve this kind of peace? How in the world do we do that? Well, the first thing we do is we put our texts away and our email away and rest our thumbs and pick up the phone and call uh, the person and get together with them and speak to them face to face with your own voice. And the reason I say that is if you want to breed more misunderstanding, then text somebody. If you want to breed more misunderstanding, try emailing them or dropping hints or whatever. All that does is create more hard feelings. Because when you're trying to get deep with somebody, especially when there's resentment or difference between you, the best way to handle it is to be adults and get together and talk it through. One of our elders, Doug Sachs and I, uh, had an issue this week. It was a small thing. It wasn't anything big. Uh, but he and I were at odds with each other. So we, we sat down and we talked face to face. And now I love my brother more than I did at the beginning of the week because I can see his heart and he can see mine. And so the way that we achieve peace is, first of all, by simply talking to each other, by communicating effectively with each other. We also achieve peace by being lovingly honest with each other. Doug was honest with me this week. We also achieve peace by being willing to learn and by being willing to be wrong. Ouch, that one hurts, doesn't it? That one hurts. That one's hard. We achieve peace by listening to each other, really listening and trying to understand where the other person's coming from. And certainly, given our theme today, we certainly achieve peace among ourselves when we pray for one another. And so Paul is exhorting us to respect and esteem our leaders for the hard work uh, for, that they're doing and for their willingness to be the uh, servants of Christ on, on our behalf. And that relationship is to be marked by genuine, a genuine desire for peace. And in fact, peace is also what should characterize our relationships with each other. You see, verse, the end of verse 13 is actually equally applicable to our relationship with our leaders and our relationship with what comes after with our fellow believers. Peace is what we should strive for in all of our relationships. This is the mark of a Christian relationship, of a relationship that is based in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to the second characteristic of the church uh, and how the fact that we fit together uh, when we are engaged in real relationships with each other. And see in verse 14, uh, Paul says, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idol. There's that word again, admonish. You and I, all of us are to to firmly uh, rebuke and firmly urge one another to live obediently to the Lord. 
That's the first lesson from this word admonish. But here Paul is talking about the idol. These are people uh, who were uh, 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 not making a living for themselves. They were freeloading off of others. They were expecting other people to pay their way. And so uh, Paul's idea in the way to deal with this was to set the example for them. Paul had the right when he went to Thessalonica to expect the churches to pay his way because he was an apostle. He was the one who founded the church. He was their leader. But he chose, uh, as we find out in 2 in uh, Thessalonians in chapter 3, we find out that he uh, intentionally uh, was kept making tents is the phrase that we always use. He earned his own living while he was there to set the example for those who might be tempted to think that it's okay to be idle as a Christian, that it's okay not to be a productive person, not to be a contributing member of the community and of, of the society as a whole. And so that's what Paul does is he sets the example for them. And so what we find out in all of this is that being a freeloader or being a busybody who appears to be working but not really working is not a Christian ideal. <laughs> the Christian ideal is that we all uh, should do our best to contribute in, in whatever way that we can. And so we're to admonish the idle. And then Paul goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. In other words, we're to, to, to strive to lift up the spirits of our brothers and sisters uh, when, they're, when they're down, when, when life has just kind of blown them away with its cares and its and concerns. Uh, there are people among us who are, who are worried about whether they're saved. There are people among us who are concerned about their circumstances, about their health. There are people who are weak in body and in spirit, and they need encouragement from us, from those of us who are stronger, those of us who are confident in our faith. But there's a reason why Paul says next, be patient with them all. Because as we step into the, to, into the life of, a, of an idle person who may be resisting the idea of contributing and uh, being a productive member of the world, uh, as we step into uh, the world of somebody uh, who is faint-hearted and, and worrisome and, and weak, we're stepping into lives that are full of stress. We're stepping into lives that are depressed and carry the burden of life in, a, in an unbalanced sort of way. Any of you who have ministered to somebody who has real depression, clinical depression, knows that no matter what you say to them, you're not going to lift them out of that depression. You're not going to... to solve that depression for them but what Paul is saying here is your encouragement your expressions of care and concern your uh, your living example of caring for those who are weak of taking uh, taking uh, uh, people to the hospital or visiting them when they're sick in the hospital and they're concerned about about whether they're going to make it or not and so on all of that does encourage them in a spiritual way. Intellectually, they can understand that they ought not to be depressed because we should have the joy of the Lord. But sometimes we get down, don't we? Sometimes it's really hard to see how we could be joyful. And so that's why those of us who are stronger in the faith at that moment 
need to step in and encourage those who are weak. Step in and admonish those who are idle to be obedient to God and so on. And so then in verse 15, uh, Paul says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good uh, to one another and to everyone. Now, now we all know this, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I think we all know it in the King James Version, don't we? We all know this very clearly. But let's not miss what Paul is doing here. He's not just saying, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He's saying, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Therefore, you as a believer, do all that you can to demonstrate the gospel to anybody. To anybody who has hurt you, to any, uh, in response to any kind of evil that that person has done against you, to everyone, even to those who have hurt you deeply. That's what we're called to do. I don't think there's any better example than our brothers and sisters a few years ago in Charleston, South Carolina, when a racist murderer walked into a Bible study and killed nine of our brothers and sisters. And just two days after that, that horrendous act, this is what a couple of family members said as if they were talking to the perpetrator. And these are from news reports. The daughter of, of one victim who was killed said this, you took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you. I forgive you. And then the husband of another victim said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, change your ways. You see, that's the goal of striving to do good even to those who have done evil to us. It's because we want them to see Christ. We want them to know the gospel. We want them to experience the grace that, that we have experienced. And so Paul says to do good to everyone so that everybody has the opportunity to repent and to be drawn near to our Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, I've got to tell you, if, if, if our brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina, could forgive somebody who had hurt them so incredibly deeply by a person who was outside the church, how much more ought we to do good to those who hurt us within the body of Christ? How much more ought we who know Christ to repent of what we've done to cause hurt? How much more ought we to strive to recognize when we've caused hurt and to plead for forgiveness and to do good to our brothers and sisters instead? Now, I like the way uh, last week's passage uh, puts it uh, uh, kind of a different spin on this in Romans uh, chapter 12 verse 10 it says love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor 
And so uh, this, in effect, means that we do good to one another and we, we almost are competitive about it. Hey, I want to do good to you. I see that, that, that maybe you're discouraged and so I want to do good to you. Well, you know what? You hurt my feelings and so I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to bake you some cookies. We do things like that. We reach out to one another. But do you see how uh, all of this requires real relationships? You know, if you're sitting here today and there's a lot of people in this room, you don't know their names, fix that this afternoon after the service. Get to know people. Start going to home groups. Start going to Bible studies. There are plenty of opportunities within this body to get to know people. Volunteer in one of our ministries. Start doing the work of the gospel together with other believers. You see, we are called to live life together as Christians. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. God always expects us to be together, to be involved in each other's lives, to be doing the work of the church together. And so we respect and esteem our elders, and we have real relationships with each other. And then that brings us to Paul's uh, third characteristic of the church. We fit together when we rejoice, pray, and give thanks all the time. All the time. Verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now this is where we might need to rethink our ideas on joy and prayer and thanksgiving because we have a tendency, and understandably so, to think of these as as very personal things. Joy is something that's very personal to us. Prayer is something that's very personal and private to us. And and thanksgiving is something that, that is very private to us. You know, for instance, I was very joyful when my mom finally came home and, and got the phone call so she could come and rescue me from the, the clinic. But I didn't tell anybody at church about it. This is probably the first time I've really shared that in my whole life. And so now finally you're hearing that testimony. I had prayed for me and God had answered me. Praise be to God. He does. He does that sometimes. And so then I was able to thank God on a very personal level, right? But God's idea here of joy and prayer and thanksgiving goes so far beyond just me and you. This is about about worshiping God together and hearing what God is doing in us, hearing what God is doing through us. And so... Paul always sees joy and prayer and thanksgiving in the context of the body of Christ. This is the way that God sees joy and prayer and thanksgiving. And and Paul uh, says that he sees them as the will of God in Christ Jesus for you in verse 18. In other words, what he's doing is clarifying that this is not my opinion as Paul. This is God's opinion. This is God's uh, uh, command, really, for our lives, that he expects a Christian to be full of joy, a Christian to be prayerful at all times, a Christian to be full of thanksgiving at all times, and that's because we have an awful lot to be joyful about. We have an awful lot to pray and praise about. We have an awful lot to be thankful for. 
But you see, for Paul, uh, Christian joy is not a self-centered thing. And it goes like this in Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so whether we are full of joy or whether we are at our greatest sorrow, we share in that joy. We share in that sorrow. And so we also rejoice when others demonstrate obedience to the Lord. Romans 16, 19, Paul says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. And what a joy it is when, when we hear among us someone finally coming to obedience in a particular matter. That's a, that's a day to praise God and to be thankful. Fellowship is also a source of joy, according to Paul. Paul is writing about a man named Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 28. And he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And so what does that tell us about our Sunday mornings together? Are we to be somber? And keep our joy and our thanksgiving to ourselves because that's culturally inappropriate to share those kinds of things? Are we to uh, hardly ever just maybe tell a few very, very close friends that God did something in our lives this week? No. This is to be a place of great joy. Our, our fellowship together ought to be a source of great joy because we're getting to hear the testimony about what God is doing. We're getting to, to testify about what God is doing. We're getting to see with our own eyes that God has saved Jeff, a sinner who deserved the wrath of God, but now he's been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah! And the same thing is true for every one of us. And we see it in a million different ways every single day uh, in, in all the, across the church as a whole. Because God is at work in us. And that's a source of incredible joy. But the only way we can experience it is when we come together. And God wants us to experience it. And so it's not just here on Sunday morning. It's when we get together for our Bible studies or our connect groups or to do, uh, to do a ministry together. Our joy should be present when we get together with somebody over a cup of coffee and we're trying to work out a difference with them. Because we all serve the same God who shed the same blood for us all. And we have eternity to look forward to. That's the source of our joy. That's why our fellowship together ought to be a time of incredible joy. And our joy is so complete that even in the midst of his own trials and tribulations, Paul rejoiced. We see this in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, also, you should be glad and rejoice with me. I think what Paul is getting at is that a Christian who has no joy is just a contradiction in terms, a walking contradiction. A Christian automatically should be filled with joy. 
And so we're, we're to, to be filled with joy constantly. And Paul also tells us that God also wants to pray constantly, without ceasing, he says. And that, what he means here is that we should have an attitude of prayer about all things. And so what Paul probably has in mind is the Jewish tradition to pray and praise throughout the day. As, as, as the Jews would go about the daily course of events in their, in, their, in their day, they would be constantly in prayer as an act of worship and praise and thanksgiving and joy. And they did this to remind themselves of who God is, that God is their provider and sustainer. And so as they would maybe, for instance, they'd be getting dressed in the morning and they would say something like, thank you, God, because you are the God who clothes his children in righteousness. And then maybe they're sitting down for a meal and, and they're peeling a piece of fruit. And they'd say, thank you, God. Because you've given this fruit such a sweet aroma that's so pleasing to me. May my offering of praise be a sweet aroma to you, O Lord. The main thing about these prayers is that none of them are about me in the sense of help me. Send my mom so I can go home and be in my own bed. That's not the kind of prayers these are. These are prayers that are about God. And so really, you, know, you look at it one way, they're, they're looking for excuses all through their day to recognize the glory of God and to thank Him for it, to praise Him for it. When was the last time you spent your day hunting for reasons to give God praise? We tend to think of those times as the, the, to praise Him as the really big ones. But we can praise him for the smallest of things because he cares for us in the smallest and most intimate of ways. And so the Jews, they weren't making a to-do list for God. They were praising God. They were acknowledging who he is and what he's done. And so even while prayer is so deeply personal and appropriately so for us, and it is abundantly appropriate you to pray for your mom to come and pick you up and rescue you from the middle school health clinic. God also means for us to pray as the body of Christ, for the body of Christ, for the glory of Christ. That ultimately is what our prayers ought to be about. Now Paul set the example for us with his co-workers and he writes about this in 2 Thessalonians at the very beginning of the letter he says to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you isn't that an awesome prayer when was the last time you prayed that for WBF that that God would make us worthy of his calling so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us. Pray that this afternoon. Pray it tomorrow. Pray it this week as you're fasting. Paul also asked the church to pray for him and his co-workers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just a few verses after our passage. Brothers, pray for us. All to say it's very clear that God and Paul expect us as Christians, certainly to pray privately, 
but also to pray in the presence of other believers, to make our prayers known, to make our joy known, to make our thanksgiving known, to make our praises known for what God is doing in us. And so we pray not only for the things that we would like God to do, but we also pray that what God wants us to do, we would do for his glory. That is what prayer is ultimately about. And so our attitude is joy. Our attitude is prayer. And finally, it is thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, this is a, a prayer of thanksgiving that's lifted up in the presence of other believers in the context of the body of Christ. Paul was constantly giving thanks to God for the faith of the churches that he'd planted and the church, church at Thessalonica was no exception. In the second verse of 1 Thessalonians, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then to the believers in Rome, uh, he writes in, in the eighth verse of Romans, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, their faith is a testimony to all the world. And Paul is thanking God for that. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing if that's what people said about us? That our faith is being proclaimed at least in all of our community. But when was the last time, when was the last time you thanked God for this body, for WBF? When was the last time that you thanked God for the faith that is exhibited in this room? There's a lot of it to appreciate here. When was the last time you thanked God for the service of your deacons? When was the last time that you thanked God for the service of our children's ministry volunteers, of our Love to Be Me volunteers, of our volunteers who go down to, to make stories in the park happen? When was the last time that you thanked God for those who give financially uh, to, to this church? When was the last time that you thanked God for the prayers of your brothers and sisters, their prayers for you, their prayers for this body. You see, thanking God for these things publicly is very appropriate. And it's a great encouragement and an awesome testimony. This is why God calls us to sing his praises out loud, but also to say his praises and to, to exclaim our joy in the presence of fellow believers in this body of Christ, and to express our thanksgiving to God. What an incredible testimony. But let me just challenge you a little bit. If church for you is an event that happens once a week on Sunday morning, and that's it, you're not likely to hear a whole lot of encouragement you're not likely to hear a whole lot of this testimony that we're talking about, and that's because it is nearly impossible for you to have a real relationship with this body, with the people who are here. And so, if church is just an event that happens once a week for you, I want to challenge you to fix that. I want to challenge you to begin to develop some relationships, 
It doesn't have to be with everybody in this room. That's impossible too. But there are some people in this room who can minister to you, who can speak the gospel into your life, and who also crave to hear the gospel spoken into their life, and maybe, maybe they're waiting for you to do that. You see, we minister to each other. You see, we also have a great deal to thank God for. And so we should thank Him. And we should thank Him in the presence of fellow members of the body of Christ. It is right and good that we do that. It's edifying for all of us. And so we respect and esteem our leaders. We commit to real relationships with each other at Borenton Bible Fellowship. And we rejoice and we pray and we give thanks all the time as 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 an attitude of worship to God. And then finally, we resist evil and receive what is good. When we fit together, we resist evil and receive what is good in verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit, Paul says. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What a paraphrase what Paul is saying here, because it's a little bit confusing. What he's saying essentially is don't quench the spirit by despising prophecies. You see, uh, Paul and the church lived in a time when the canon of scripture was still open. And so you got all these people running around uh, claiming to speak with the authority of God. Well, who's, who really is and who really isn't? It was a difficult thing to discern. There were ways, of course, of doing that. If they uh, cannot declare that Christ is, is the, uh, the Son of God, then, then that's an obvious giveaway. But it tended to be a whole lot more subtle than that. And so over time, the, the, the church was just struggling with this so much that they were tempted to do exactly what we would be tempted to do, and that is just to say no to prophecy. I'm not going to listen to it anymore because I don't know how to tell it all apart. And so Paul is telling them not to despise prophecy, not to reject prophecy, because after all, if they do that, they're going to eliminate Paul's teaching. (laughs) They're going to eliminate what Peter says and what James says and uh, what the Gospels say and so on. And so he doesn't want them to do that, and neither would we want to do that. And so now the canon of Scripture is closed, we can be sure of what's true, right? Or can we? Look at the world we live in today. We've got voices all over the place today who are challenging biblical truth, who are saying that they know the truth and the Bible doesn't. We've got voices all around us who are scoffing at God's words. And so these words of Paul are as relevant today as they ever were. Don't despise prophecy. In other words, don't despise God's word, which, of course, is the ultimate prophecy, right? And so we are called to receive God's word and allow it to change us. I love the motto of Trinity Lutheran Church. Trinity is one of our partner churches in the Warrington Gospel Partnership. And this is their motto. We don't change the Bible. The Bible changes us. Amen, right? That is clearly stated. And that's beautiful. That's exactly right. But we've got to be careful, don't we? We've got to be careful because of the world we live in. And we've got to be careful because John and I, I know this will be a surprise to you, are not perfect. And so what about our preaching and teaching here at WBF? Paul says in verse 21, to test everything. 
everything. Test everything. Examine carefully what I say this morning. Examine carefully what Pastor Kavakas says next week. Is it biblical? Is our, uh, is our teaching biblically accurate? Do we proclaim Christ faithfully? And so as you, as you test what we teach and preach, verse 21 goes on to say, hold fast what is good. And so in other words, whatever is good and right and what uh, we preach and teach here at WBF, well, keep it, hold on to it, it's good stuff. Whatever is false, well, throw it away. It's an easy decision, right? Just throw it in the trash can, that's where it belongs. Now, falsehood with Paul, of course, is equated with evil. And so that's why he says next in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Uh, Not only abstain from accepting false teaching, but abstain from every form of evil. Because sin and evil are simply unbecoming of a follower of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Don't just throw it away, but put it to death. Annihilate it. Annihilate your old self with the gospel and put on the new self, which is the gospel. And so as we put to death our sin, we learn to abide in, by God's words of truth that we find in Scripture. And we learn to live in a way that is worthy of our calling, as he says in Ephesians 4. And this is our calling to unity our calling to be the body of Christ. And that brings us back to how we fit together. This is the exclamation point at the, at the end of this description of the body of Christ. We respect and esteem our leaders. We build real relationships with each other. We rejoice and pray and give thanks all the time. And this exclamation point is that we resist evil and receive what is good, is good and true. This is how we fit together. And prayer, this idea of worshipful joy and prayer and thanksgiving is one of the keys to our fitting together. Certainly we do pray for our individual needs. But Paul and God see prayer working on a a huge scale, a much grander scale than that. He sees us praying all the time. This, This attitude of prayer, of joy and thanksgiving. He sees our prayers wrapped in joy and thanksgiving. And he sees, he sees us praying as the, as the local body of Christ, corporately, together, all pulling in one direction, all moving in one direction, toward the gospel, toward Christ, proclaiming Christ in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we are. But all of this requires diligent prayer for this body. Prayer that God would show us the way. Prayer that God would enable us to be effective representatives of our Lord in this this lost and broken world. And so I want you to hear how all this comes together as you listen to Paul's explanation of his prayer at the beginning of this incredible letter to the Thessalonians. And listen, as you listen, listen for all these characteristics of the church that Paul has just described in the passage we meditated on at the other end of this letter. Respect for leaders who labor among us. Relationships with each other. Real relationships, which include admonition as well as encouragement and patience. 
this, this idea that we ought to be resisting evil and receiving the truth. Listen, listen to the joy and the thanksgiving in Paul's prayer. And you can follow along with me if you want. This is the second beginning in the second verse of 1 Thessalonians. Just listen to this. This is remarkable. We give thanks to God always for you. Constantly, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and, uh, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all, all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Isn't that something? This is what was on Paul's heart. And this is what he's telling us that ought to be on our hearts as we come to church on Sunday morning and as we go through our week. This body of Christ should be one of the focal points of our prayers. And this is the way in which we ought to pray. That God would be glorified in us. That Christ would be glorified in us. And that we pray these things in the presence of other believers so that we can all be encouraged and by the testimony of, of uh, faith that we hear and the testimony of how great our God is for what he's doing in and among us. This is exactly the kind of prayer that we need here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. And so here's what Pastor John is asking us to do this week. You know that, that he's asking us to fast. Well, today he wants you to fast on two days. Uh, we have a little confusion in, in our bulletin, between our bulletin and, and uh, other information as to which days. It doesn't really matter which days. Let's just throw out Tuesday and Wednesday uh, to fast. Uh, you can either fast with food or activity or both if you'd like. But the important thing is that you fast, and the purpose of the fast is to turn your heart toward God, is to, to use the time, perhaps, that you're not doing the activity that you're fasting, uh, to spend that time in prayer, and to learn to pray like Paul prayed for the Thessalonian church, to learn to pray for Warrington Bible Fellowship in that kind of way. And so, this is exactly what we're going to do right now. Not the fasting part, but the praying part. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to break up into groups of about a half a dozen or so. The deacons are standing by as well to, to guide you a little bit if you need it. You can step out into the aisles uh, if you need to, to, to get together. Uh, but here's what we're going to pray for today as we gather in our small groups. We're going to pray for the leaders of this church. We need your prayers. We do. We covet your prayers. 
Also, I want to ask you to pray for relationships within this church. Pray for the idle. Pray for those who are faint-hearted and weak. And pray that you might have patience with them all. Pray that you would receive the joy and the thanksgiving and be able to express it. So pray that joy and thanksgiving. Praise God in joy. Praise him in thanksgiving. And then finally, pray that we would all be able to resist evil and to receive what is good. That is to receive uh, what is from the Holy Spirit, to receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's go ahead and do that. Let's break up into groups. We can stand up and, uh, and go ahead and gather again out in the aisles, wherever you need to gather, in groups of about a half a dozen or so. And we'll spend a few minutes in prayer, and then we'll close uh, with a song, and that'll be our benediction.